false expectations. We all at one point or another have had them. When you enter into a relationship starry-eyed, right, you have certain expectations for how you think that that relationship is going to go. However, oftentimes, that relationship often ends up not being what you first expected. Take, for example, the past episode of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I'm not talking about this past Friday. I'm talking about the one before named The Tragedy, episode 15. You know it well. I kept hearing all weekend how this episode was incredible and the best one yet. And so naturally, I'm thinking, like, surprise guest appearance from Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm thinking baby Yoda is Master Yoda's son. And that's not at all what happened. No. It was a good show, but it was not at all what I expected. I was expecting visions of grandeur. Instead, I got something much less, although it was okay. Final example, signing up for fall retreat last year to go to Castle Bluff, right? Visions of glory, right? And you get there, and it's like, wow, this is a great view, but I don't know that this view is worth it for the dump that you had to endure, okay? You had expectations of grandeur, and they did not meet those expectations. There were rat pellets in the bathroom, and your living quarters were nothing to write home about. False expectations, right? We have expectations that don't turn out the way that we initially thought. Jesus' disciples were the same way. They had expectations that didn't turn out the way that they thought. His disciples knew this as well. They expected that God's Messiah would bring God's fullness whenever he came, that he would bring God's kingdom in all its fullness whenever he came. The prophets declared that the Messiah, that when the Messiah arrived, there would be a great division where God would defeat his enemies, that he would judge them, that he would vindicate his people, and that everything would be made new. The disciples thought that was going to happen immediately. They thought the division would come by Jesus delivering them from Roman oppression and establishing a new kingdom in their day. Yet what Jesus taught them was that he would die. <laughs> he would actually be defeated by his enemies, so to speak. And from the perspective of the disciples and the rest of the world, it didn't look like the Messiah won. It actually looked like the Messiah lost. And so naturally, whenever Jesus dies, the disciples are discouraged. But then very soon after, they are encouraged because of Christ's resurrection. What seemed to be defeat in their eyes was victory in God's. They had a different understanding of what they had a different understanding of what the Messiah would do to resolve the problem of sin. However, the war wasn't ultimately Roman rule, but the rule of sin in their hearts that condemned that condemned them before God. They didn't understand that the Christ must die for sin if his kingdom is to actually come. That's a little bit of what we talked about last week. And so that discouragement turned into encouragement very quickly whenever he rose from the grave. And though sin and death were defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection, the day of great division has still not come. We live in this time between the times. Not only did Jesus tell his disciples that he would die, but also that there would be a delay before all of the promises of the kingdom would be completely fulfilled at his second coming. And so God tells us in his word that this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is what? What is it called? The delay between his first and second coming. What's this time period called? Anybody? 
Okay, the last days, the end times. Yeah, you could say the end times. That's good, yeah. So think of it this way. I need to scrap this. All right, so think of it this way. You've got two circles. You've got the present age right here. Present age. And then you've got the age to come. Jesus' disciples, man, they thought they were like, age to come is here. That is not what happened. They don't know what happened. And then right here you've got Jesus' first coming. And then right here, on both sides of that, where they both meet, right there is his second coming. The time in between these two ages is known as just the last days. This is, this is, uh, this is the period that we live in right now. It's the age of the Spirit, what is known as the already Right, that God's kingdom has come, Jesus brought it near and not yet of Jesus' kingdom. It's not fully realized. We're not in the age to come yet. And so what happened whenever Jesus came is that that age to come broke into the present age. And you've got this overlap of these two ages that we live in right here. And so what is happening is that we actually get to experience some of the blessings of the new covenant through Jesus' death and resurrection. Yet we have not experienced all of those blessings in their fullness, which we will experience in the age to come whenever Christ returns at his second coming. That makes sense. That's the the delay right there. The time between the times. That there is an age, a present age, and an age to come, and that age to come is broken in to the present. But why is there a delay between the first and second coming of Christ? Why is there that delay? You've got to ask yourself that. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's actually patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come or reach repentance. The point of Jesus' delay in his return is so that more people would come to hear the gospel, they would come to repent and believe and trust in Christ. That's the point. So the purpose of his delay is the proclamation of the gospel for salvation for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's the point. And so now, right now, is the age of gospel proclamation to all nations. That's what this age is. The kingdom is no longer limited to Israel. Now it's for all people, no matter what ethnicity they are. It's always ultimately been about that. However, Israel thought it was ultimately about themselves. Israel was supposed to be an instrument of taking that message and and reflecting God's glory to the nations, and yet they failed at that. They became more like the nations than they did actually reflecting God's glory to the nations. And yet now God is incorporating, he's grafting in a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation into his own people. But how will that happen? Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples in Acts 1.8 that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they receive power for proclamation. They in and of themselves can't just go out preaching Christ. They need help to be able to do that, to be able to take the gospel to foreign lands. And so they receive the power of the Spirit in order to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And that happens whenever Jesus sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is just 50 weeks after his resurrection, and the Spirit fills his disciples 
and they begin preaching the gospel in different languages, different tongues. That's what that's getting at in Acts chapter 2. That is a clear sign that the Spirit has been given for this purpose. And not only that, that right there, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls upon Jesus' disciples, that right there is a clear indication and a sign that the new covenant has been fulfilled in Christ and that Christ has now sent his Spirit, that we live in the last days in the age of the Spirit. And not only that, the Spirit is creating a people for God, and so now we live in the age of the church as well. In the next passage, right after Acts chapter 2, Spirit falls upon man, next passage, Peter starts preaching. And what do you know? He says that this happened, this giving of the Spirit, was to fulfill what God said through the prophet Joel hundreds of years ago. So I want somebody to read Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Joel 2, 28 through 29. I want you all to see how connected the scriptures are. New Testament is showing fulfillment of the Old Testament. The apostles knew this, and that's exactly what they preached. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. It may take you a minute. To get to Joel, if you need to, you can always go to the front of your Bible. I will give you a page number for where you can find Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Excellent, Keldon. So understand, it's not like the Spirit was not active before now. It's like, now he's getting to work, you know. That's not it at all. He eternally exists as the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God, right? He's one person of the the Trinity. And so he is God. He's eternally existed. However, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon certain individuals, such as kings or prophets, to empower them for specific tasks. But what's new now is that he will actually fill all people who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That's the point of the prophet Joel's declaration, is that this is not only going to just men, this is going to men and women. This is not just going to those who are aged or who are old, but it's also going to those who are young. Right? It's going, the point of it is to look at a comprehensive scope of God's spirit being given to God's people who are both young and old, who are both male and female, who are of all ethnicities throughout the globe. That's the point of that prophecy. It's a universal scope of the Spirit's work, which is one of the ways that the new covenant is distinct actually from the old covenant. Now God's Spirit dwells in his people, not just among the people, or does he come on the people who are very specific, uh, who have been given a specific task. Now he dwells in the people of God, no matter who they are. The prophet Jeremiah also declared this day would happen hundreds of years earlier in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Someone read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Jeremiah is just after Isaiah. Lamentations comes on the heels of it.
Okay. That was verse 33. Well, that's good. Do you mind to read verses 31 through 33? Well, and you probably got confused because it, it's Jeremiah 31. And I, yep. Okay, so under the old covenant, okay, under the old covenant, God's people couldn't keep the law by their own power. That was impossible. That's the whole point. They've been given all these laws, and they can't keep the laws, right? They keep failing. They keep falling into sin or living in sin. But now God has actually placed that law upon their heart. He's written it on their heart so that they can actually live in obedience to him. This is a, this is the, a distinction between the new covenant in the Old Covenant. They couldn't keep those laws. But now what does Paul do? He comes in and he just starts leveling commands one after another. Jesus doing the same thing. When Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies in Romans 6, he's not saying that, well, I'm just going to give them that command and yet not believing that they can actually do it. The point of what was going on in the Old Testament was that God was showing his people that you can't keep it. And ultimately you need me to be able to keep that. And yet, in God's kindness, the lawmaker became the law keeper for lawbreakers. Praise God. That's what Jesus did, right? And so the promise of a new heart and a new obedience is also picked up in Ezekiel 36. The reason why I'm having you read these passages is because they are massive. Three passages that are huge for seeing them fulfilled in the New Testament are Joel 2, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36. So someone read Ezekiel 36. Verses 26 through 27. Okay. Once again, under the old covenant, God's people were characterized by a heart of stone. Now under the new covenant, God puts his spirit in all of his people, and as a result of that, they receive a heart of flesh. They receive a new heart, a new spirit. They receive a circumcised heart. That no longer is it about physical circumcision to identify that you're a part of the people of God. Now it's about having a circumcised heart to be identified with the people of God. You can get that in Colossians chapter 2. The failure to obey God that began with Adam in the garden is now remedied in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's remedied. That problem is now able to be solved. Through Ultimately, that is going to come through the blood of Christ, because without that, without the work of Christ, we can't have the Spirit applied to us, because we have to trust in Him and His work, repent of our own sin and trust in Him to pay for that sin in order to receive the gift of the Spirit. So it's by this Holy Spirit that God is at work in creating a people for Himself, in his place, who live under rule and blessing. Do you see what's going on here? This is what the Spirit is doing now in the new covenant age, right? This time between the times right here. He is creating a people for himself to live in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
Now, ultimately, that people, as we're going to be, as we're going to see, is a new, is a uh, regenerated people. We're going to describe what that means of people who've undergone the new birth, and yet they also become the temple, the place where the Spirit resides, and they're able to actually live under God's rule and reign by living in obedience to God because they they've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going. So, point one. God's people. I want to just look at those three sections and show you how each of those sections is being fulfilled now, how it relates to us. And then at the very end, I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you how all of this is ultimately pointing to a new creation, when all of it will be perfected. There will be a new and better Eden. The end, right, as we, saw, as we see, was ultimately given in the beginning, and yet we go back there in Revelation 21 and 22. John 3, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to be looking at John 3, 1 through 11. I'm not going to have you read that. I'm going to kind of summarize that passage. Wonderful passage where a high-ranking religious man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime to learn more about Jesus. And just what's fascinating about it, you know, is he comes up to Jesus and he's kind of, you know, Jesus, we hear you're a teacher. Come from God. And he's, you know, trying to get into this conversation with Jesus Right? We know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform these signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus just cuts straight to the point. <laughs> Why? Because ultimately Jesus knows in the passage right before John chapter 3 and 2, 23 through 25, Jesus knows what's in man. The biggest issue isn't just that Nicodemus would come to Jesus, right, just to kind of get to know a little bit more about who this Jesus figure is because he's suspicious of him. Now, the biggest issue is that the kingdom of God needs to be born in Nicodemus' heart. And Jesus cuts straight to this chase. He says in verse 3, Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is bewildered. (laughs) He is confused. He asks Jesus how anybody can actually physically re-enter their mother's womb a second time and be born. And yet Nicodemus is missing the point. He's focusing on being born physically, but Jesus is speaking about a spiritual birth. A couple verses later, Jesus says, unless someone is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. As a part of the religious elite of his day, Nicodemus thought he was born into God's kingdom because of his pedigree. I mean, he's a Pharisee. He's one of the highest ruling Jews of the land. He is a Jewish Pharisee. If anybody's getting into the kingdom... Surely it's Nicodemus. And yet Jesus is like, you need to be born again, homie. However, Jesus explained that no one can be born into God's kingdom, but God's kingdom has got to be born into them. That's what's got to happen. And that happens by the Spirit giving us the new spiritual birth, the new birth, also known as regeneration, right? Re, that is again, generation, just means to produce again, to be born again. That's what regeneration means. That is an act of God. Outside of Christ, we are by nature rebels, sinners against God. And so it is absolutely humanly impossible to repent and place our trust in Christ outside of a work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. And that's why the Spirit convicts us of our sin, John chapter 16. And then the Spirit does what? He points us to Jesus who can deal with our sin, and who has dealt with our sin. Jesus says the Spirit will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and actually making it known to you. John chapter 16, verse 14. 
So notice that the Spirit is often called the shy member of the Trinity, just meaning that he is shining the spotlight back upon Christ because when people behold Christ for, who all, he, for all that he is, right, they are brought to saving faith in him by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the instrument right, that is used to produce the new birth in us through God's word. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 23, that we've been born again, same language right here, We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So the Spirit takes the word of God and opens up our eyes to behold Christ for who he is and all his glory and regenerates our hearts, gives us a new heart. He circumcises our hearts, withdrawing any of the old man that was in us and creating us a new man, a new human being, a new creation is what Paul says. This is just a reminder of why the ministry of the word is held in such high regard at EBC, right? Think about this. God creates everything out of nothing by his word. He does it again by the spirit taking that word and bringing about a new creation within us. That's why the word is so important. That's why you focus in your Bible studies on just walking people through the scriptures, right? This is not a performance, We're not trying to sell you a certain bill of goods. We're giving you the word of God so that your hearts and your lives would be utterly transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's why we do that. That's why we prioritize the word of God. The Spirit's role is not to point to himself, but is to point to Jesus. He's to open our eyes to understand the truth about him and then to enable us to put our trust in him. And when he causes us to be born again, How do we respond? This is known as conversion. Regeneration, conversion. Separate things, but they're a part of kind of the same coin. So conversion is our response to the Spirit's work. Conversion is repentance and faith. That's what conversion is. Regeneration is the Spirit's work to open up our eyes to see that we have been in sin and we need Christ and we turn from our sin and trust in him. That's conversion. That makes sense? Head bobbles? All right. So, the Spirit regenerates us and now lives in us, which is remarkable. God dwelling in man is remarkable. The Spirit lives in us now. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And so if you are in Christ, you have the spirit of Christ. Last week we saw how Christ was the true Israel. As a result of his death and resurrection and the sending of the spirit, the church is now the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians 6.16, spiritually speaking, right? We're not a geopolitical nation in here, okay? We are spiritually the people of God, the the Israel of God. Peter applies these titles that are given to Israel in the Old Testament he actually applies them now to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says that you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So what we see is that the identity of the church is directly tied to the identity of Christ. It's directly tied to him. The church is only the new Israel because she's been united to the true Israel, Jesus. Anything said about us is true because it was first said about Christ. And what's individually true of us as Christians is corporately true of us 
as a church. So it's true of us individually, it's true of us corporately as a church. That is an important distinction. You are not a lone ranger. You are not meant to do the Christian life by yourself. You're totally missing it if, that, if that's where you've landed. So what does all this mean for us? A couple of things. Number one, do you have this in your handout? Do you have uh, these two points in your handout? Thank you, Trent. That's excellent. The church is a spiritually born-again community. So that serves as a reminder that no amount of bad deeds, consider that, no amount of bad deeds, no amount of good deeds, whether by you or our family relative, right? We don't live off of grandma's faith. So whether bad deeds or good deeds by you or someone else, those can't save you. No amount of times that you ring a bell at a church camp can save you. No matter, well, if it doesn't matter, ultimately, if you're born into a wealthy family, much like Nicodemus. So in John chapter 3, you get Nicodemus, right, the religious elite of his day. If anybody saved, this guy surely is in the kingdom. Well, then you get to what? John 4. And who's in John 4? The Samaritan woman. If anybody is not in the kingdom, it is this chica, right? That lady is not getting in the kingdom, so we think. And then Jesus flips everything on its head and says, actually, she's in the kingdom, and this guy is not. Now, I think Nicodemus does come uh, into the kingdom later uh, in John. But what he's doing is he's showing us that it doesn't matter about if you grow up in a wealthy family or a poor family. It doesn't matter if you grow up in Saudi Arabia or China. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you've been born of the Holy Spirit. And you've responded by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And have you done that? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you belong to the people of God? Does the Spirit dwell in you? If not, repent and trust in Him and begin to live under the good rule and reign of God where true blessing actually comes. That doesn't mean material blessings in this life, right? All of that, everything comes in the age to come. But you do receive many of the blessings, spiritual blessings, in this life, which are glorious, such as the Spirit dwelling in you now to live in obedience to God, to live the good life rather than a life of disobedience. This is why also UBC practices what we call regenerate church membership, okay? Just regenerate, born again, membership. One of the ways that we seek to practice this is just by sitting down with prospective members, hearing whether or not they give a credible profession of faith. Those of you that have come into the church, we sat down with you, we heard your profession of faith, we had you explain what the gospel is. The reason why we do that is so that, number one, people that are coming into the church, which is supposed to be an embassy of the kingdom of God, those people, so we can tell as much as possible, seem to be professing believers in Christ. And that's why we do that, because it's biblical, right? It's not meant to be a mixed bag of like, well, I don't know, you know, we don't want to be unloving. It's actually unloving to have someone believe that they're a believer coming into the church and yet not actually even tell them that they may not actually be if they're not living in, in alignment with God's word. That would be unloving to do that. So the church is biblically to be made up of those who've been born again. That's why we do what we do. The new covenant sign of that new birth is what? Anybody know what the new covenant sign of that new birth is? Or the sign of the new covenant? 
Come on, you guys, you guys got to hold in there. There's beautiful snow outside. I'm seeing it. You're almost there. Answer. Give me an answer. Sign of the new covenant. Heart circumcision, okay, sign of heart circumcision. Baptism, correct, right? Baptism signifies our union with Christ, which means that for believers, that's to be administered by the church, by the people of God. They administer baptism. It's, a, it's an ordinance, a, it's a, a practice that's given to the church, right? Because we are saying this person, yes, is a believer. We're giving affirmation to this person's faith. If you're struggling with assurance of salvation, go back and look at your baptism before the whole church, the church is giving affirmation that you're a believer, and you're declaring before the church that you are a believer. That's what's going on. And so it's an outward picture of an inward reality of spiritual heart transformation that's taken place. Going under the water signifies death to sin. Rising out of the water signifies new life in Christ. Those who have been born again are to be baptized into a local body of believers, the church, in obedience to Christ. That's what that's to look like. Secondly, the church is a reconciled community. Not only does the new birth bring peace between us and God, but also between one another. Naturally, as sinners, we turn differences against one another. We use our education, our wealth, our ethnicity to further just separate, to reject, to even enslave, as we've seen throughout history, and to murder one another. That's how we often use our differences. However, in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus' death broke down that dividing wall of hostility that stood against the Jews and Gentiles, and he has now created one new man, a new humanity reconciled to God, a new humanity that equally inherits all of God's promises, no matter who they are in Christ. So that's a question for you all. There is a question for you all. Where might you be erecting walls between you and others where Christ has actually torn them down? Where are you trying to re-erect those walls? Where do you try to make distinctions between yourself and others in the faith to prop yourself up, to hold on, uh, to hold on to those things so that you feel unique or you feel a little bit better than someone else? Where do you look at differences where God sees equality in Christ? Where do you do that? If anyone is in Christ, then they will inherit all that you inherit. They're in Christ just as much as you are. As it's been said, there is nothing between us and God, so there is nothing between us. And there is nothing between us because Christ tore it down. Right? He tore that down. If we've been reconciled to God, then we are reconciled to one another. That's what that's getting at. And we're to live as a reconciled community. Long point one, point two is much shorter. Trust me, we're not going, we're not going the distance this morning. As it's been said, well, yeah, we'll get into point two. Point two, God's place. I'll skip that. At the same time that the Spirit creates a people for God, he also creates a place at the same time. And so God's place. We saw in previous weeks that the temple was the place where God's people would meet with him. It was the place where God's presence dwelled. It was a place where God's people could see, right, that God's people could see and touch. It was a physical locale. It was a physical location. It was reminiscent of Eden, which served as a garden temple. And yet the temple was a reminder that one only had limited access to God because of sin. And yet Jesus' death tore the temple curtain in two, signifying that access to God's presence was now open through him. That's what was happening when that curtain was torn in two. 
um, on that day of his death. No longer did someone meet with God at a place, now they meet with God in a person. Jesus is now the true temple of God. However, it doesn't stop there. When Jesus gave us the Spirit, the Spirit took up residence in us individually, and Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, when he says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I mean, obviously, if your body is the temple of God, then you would think you want to glorify God with your body. That's why it's so evil whenever we use our body for evil, because the Spirit is dwelling within us. We are sinning against the Lord. Not only does God dwell in us individually, he also dwells in us as a community, as a church. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the church by using the image of a building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean? What is the cornerstone? Mendez, you talked about this a couple weeks ago, big boy. So what is a cornerstone? Any engineers in here know what a cornerstone is? I would sure hope you did. Or else I don't directing my buildings. Nobody. Cornerstone. Foundation. Okay. So if you don't have the cornerstone, what, is, what happens? All comes tumbling down right? Great. Cornerstone of a building is the most critical piece to that building. It's the most critical piece. It's the stone in the corner of the foundation that ensures that the building is square and it's stable. Without it, the building will collapse. Every Christian is a stone for his temple. The church is the temple as stones built together for the place of God's presence. So friends, when you gather with God's people on Sunday mornings, do you ever think about the fact that God is among us when we gather? Do you ever think about that? Like right now, when we're about to go to the 1030, God is among us as we give worship to him. So often I think we just get distracted with how bad our breath stinks in these masks, or we get tired of hearing hymns right, just over and over again, or sitting in a sermon for 50 minutes that we miss this incredible supernatural fact that God is among us in the mundane. He's among us in the mundane, not so glamorous moments of our gathering. I'm wearing you out right now for you to go sit for 50 more minutes, but did you ever consider that God is among us right now? And that is a glorious fact. You want to sit in it. How do you view Sunday mornings? Do you see it as just another meeting to kind of just check off the list? Do you come just to see others? Which is not necessarily bad. But is that the whole point of why you come? It's a social gathering. Do you think that, the major, that nothing major actually happens because each Sunday just seems to be going on and on, one Sunday after another, the same thing? God is among us. And if we want to meet with God, one of the ways we do that is by gathering together. And so what happens on Sunday mornings is sacred because we gather to give worship and, and fellowship with God. So what we see right here is that something, is hap something that's happening is supernatural. And the Spirit has created a new people for God. He dwells in them as the temple of God now. And yet how are we to live in light of this as God's temple, individually and then corporately as his church? Last point, God's rule and blessing. We're finishing up. 
In the beginning, Adam and Eve were called by God to rule over the earth as God's image bearers. They were to reflect God's character and to live under his rule by living in obedience to his command to bear children and to work and keep the ground, right? To work and watch over the garden. And yet Adam failed. Later, God gives his people Israel his law, which reflects his very character. It reflects that he's holy and he's good. His people were to walk in obedience to it, and yet they couldn't keep his law because they needed new hearts. It's part of the beauty of the new covenant. Christ came. He lived in perfect obedience. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. And he lived in perfect obedience to the Father, and now he rules over the new creation who is made up of all of God's people who've been given new hearts through repentance and faith and by the work of the Spirit. By his blood, Jesus has set us free from bondage to sin and death, and we are no longer powerless to be able to fight against sin. Christ has given us the new covenant blessing of the Spirit that helps live in obedience to him. So, where else do we see the work of the Spirit in these last days? I want to give you a couple of ways. The Spirit equips us to serve Christ, point number one, under point number three, or I guess A, under number three. Is that right? Is that what it is? Okay. Spirit equips us to serve Christ. So after the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin declaring the gospel in different languages. The rest of the book of Acts is just really a hashing out. It's just recording God's people being empowered by his spirit to preach the gospel to the nations. That's the book of Acts. (laughs) They are literally witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8, just getting worked out throughout the rest of the book. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter and John are imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And they go before the highest Jewish ruling council of their day. So you can imagine, they're sweating, right? They want to throw in the towel and give it up. There's no way we're going to go before them and get out of this thing alive. It would be tempting to throw in the towel, to just go on and just stop preaching. But what we see is the opposite. Peter preaches Christ boldly in front of them, and the Apostle Luke tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. As one author put it, we cannot claim to be filled with the Spirit as individuals and as churches if we are not active in evangelism. The Spirit's great concern is to lead people to Christ. So think about this. Where do you normally look when you're telling someone else about Jesus? Where do you normally look whenever you tell somebody else about Christ? Well, naturally, we look at ourselves, right? Does my breath stink? Do they think I'm awkward for talking to them about this? Right? Well, are they going to reject me you know, because, I, because I'm actually going to tell them about Jesus? We're naturally turned in on ourselves. We focus on us. And so often we're focused on ourselves rather than relying upon God's Spirit who indwells us to empower us, to give us the words that we need when we need them, and then praying for boldness to speak the gospel clearly. That's what we need to be praying for. I love how one of my buddies was in China. He lived there for two years. And uh, he was a missionary there for two years. And he has this great story where he was ministering to this Chinese guy. And he showed them the Jesus film. And if you've seen the Jesus film, it's absolutely corny is all get out. And yet, and so he's thinking the whole time like, gosh, this is going to be a disaster. This is going to be awful. This film is so corny. Sure enough, he shows that film to this guy. And he just starts bawling and just is utterly wrecked by this film. But that's the point. Because it's a work of the Spirit 
to bring about the new birth in people. We're to be faith in preaching the gospel so that the Spirit would work upon the hearts of man to convert them and to draw them near to Christ. And so we need to be praying, right, that the Spirit would give us boldness to preach the gospel clearly that others may come to faith in him. We are instruments of the Holy Spirit to preach Christ so that the Holy Spirit may take that word of the gospel and bring about new birth. We live under God's rule in our hearts by proclaiming his kingdom rule and reign in Christ to others. That's part of how we live under his rule and reign today, is proclamation. We also do this through our pursuit of holiness by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us for holiness. When the, when the Bible speaks about salvation, it uses three tenses. This is important. You do want to pay attention to this. Speaks about three, it gives us three different tenses whenever it speaks about salvation. Past, present, and future, obviously. <laughs> In Christ, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We saw that last week. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. So by grace, you've been saved, Ephesians 2.8. Christ paid the penalty for your sin once for all time. Not only, are we being, not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin, past tense, in Christ we will be saved from the presence of sin. Unfortunately, sin is still a reality for us in our lives. And yet when Christ returns, we're going to receive the full blessings of the age to come where there will be no more presence of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. And lastly, in Christ, we are being saved right now from the power of sin. Because we live in the already not yet period of history where our salvation is secure in Christ, yet we don't fully realize it until his return, we need the help of the Spirit to make war on our sin. This side of heaven, we will not be sinless, yet neither will we be spiritless. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 12 through 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One of the greatest weapons that you have in your arsenal against your sin is the Spirit. The Spirit empowers you to put to death the sin that's in your life. So before you're in Christ, you're a slave to sin. Sin is your master, and the wage that it pays you, Romans 6.23, is death. Thank you for sinning for me. Death. Congratulations. That sin is your master. We are enslaved to sin outside of Christ. But now in Christ... You can actually keep the promises of God that have been given to you, not by your power, but by the Holy Spirit's power. Sin is no longer to reign over you. Instead, you live under the rule of God by the Spirit empowering you to put your sin to death. God rules over us by the Spirit ruling over our hearts. That's what it looks like today. So would you say that your soul has the smoke of war going up in it as you battle your sin right now? Does it have the smoke of war going up from it because you've made war against your sin? Are you even aware that there is a war that is going on? Are you aware that that's going on? Have you become so comfortable to your sin that you're blinded from the war? The reality is that you've been given greater ammunition to be able to fight. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You must utilize him. This war serves as a reminder that we're not in heaven yet. It's like your mother baking cookies or something. And you get to lick the spatula with all the cookie dough before she bakes the cookies. In some sense, we've been given a foretaste. Well, in, 
We have. We've been given a foretaste of what is to come, of all the glorious realities we're going to receive in Christ. Now, sometimes that cookie dough is a little bit better than the cookie, but I'm not getting at that, right? I'm getting at the final product, the cookie before you. We only have a foretaste of what's to come, but what is to come? Someone read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. This is reading the last passage. This is it. This is how we're ending. This glorious picture of where all of this is headed. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And then somebody else read Revelation 21, 2 through chapter 22, verse 5. So Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and then Revelation 21, verse 22, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. All right, verse 2 on through chapter 22, verse As Christians, this is what we long for. This is what we hope for. This is a glorious day. It's the pinnacle of a life lived for Christ. In these passages, we see the promises of God fulfilled for good for all of time. God's people will make up those from every tongue, tribe, and nation who trust in Christ. They will dwell in God's place in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, which is the new temple. They will all submit to God's rule perfectly and reap his eternal blessing. They will live in glory with him. 
That's the picture of God's place, or God's people in God's place under his rule and reign that was given in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. What was once a garden temple has now become a city temple, a temple city, where God's people dwell among him in perfect glory. What we have is a picture of a true and better Eden. That's where everything is headed for. So what are you looking forward to? And is it that? Let me pray for us. Father, we give praise to you that we do have a glorious future. Lord, we know that we just can't even scratch the surface on some of the ministries of the Spirit. Uh, this morning, we know that there are many more. But Lord, we pray that we would live by your Spirit to put to death the deeds of our flesh. And Lord, that we would put on Christ and seek to live uh, in alignment with him and his way because we have been brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek the things above, to set our mind upon those things, as Paul tells us to do in Colossians chapter three. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right.